This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I want you to imagine yourself behind the wheel of a car near the very top of a very steep mountain. Now, to get back down this mountain, there are two roads that stretch out before you. On the left is a long, winding road. The road on the left is a well-maintained road guardrails, clear signages, and periodic rest stops. But with this safety also comes a snail's pace. And with the temperature dropping here at the top of the mountain, you don't want to freeze to death crawling down this road at a snail's pace. So instead you look to your right, a straight down dirt road shortcut. It looks a lot quicker, more efficient, and comes with the promise of you getting to your destination in half the time. However, this road lacks barriers, lacks anywhere to stop, and others who've traveled down this road before warn you, that once you're flying down this path at speed, there's very little chance of slowing down or turning back. There are nations who, much like our drivers in the scenario, have faced similar crossroads. Do they prioritize the enduring, tried and true methods of governance, making sure to dole out justice and benefits methodically, even if it may seem tedious to the average person? Or is the temperature dropping quick enough? And do we veer toward that swift, tempting shortcut, even if it comes with risks down the road? Well, the person piloting that car down that quick dirt shortcut is the current president of El Salvador, a man named Nayib Bukele, a leader who was once celebrated as the harbinger of a fresh political dawn inside El Salvador, moving at a speed thought impossible down the conventional road. However, now that we're barreling at this speed, it's nearly impossible to turn back. Will El Salvador arrive at the bottom of the mountain safely, or are we watching the country being driven into a crash? Well, those are some of the questions we're going to be answering here today. And to help us explain who Bukele is and how he arrived here in the first place, we turn to our first guest. Part one, seeking safety. Because El Salvador is so small and so close to the United States, it's always been in the shadow of the superpower. It's had a succession of fairly autocratic governments and a huge amount of violence. Robert Guest is a senior correspondent and the deputy editor of The Economist, whose previous roles at the magazine include foreign editor, US editor, business editor, and their Washington correspondent. But importantly for today's episode, he was also The Economist's chief expert in Central America, having reported on the region for years, witnessing firsthand the brutal gang wars, as well as the rise of the country's current president, consistently producing some of the best analytical work on the country anywhere available today. And we're thrilled to have him on the program. There was a, a civil war where the authoritarian military government that was backed by the United States fought against leftist guerrillas, and that was extremely bloody. It's a kind of national difficult backdrop for a country. If we move into the more modern era, the country has simply been plagued by gang violence. Now, a lot of the gangsters were people who had been deported from the United States for being in gangs there, and were deported back to El Salvador. Many of them didn't even speak Spanish because they were second or third generation immigrants. And if you arrive back in a country with no real education and not speaking the local languages, the only people who were prepared to employ these newly deported gangsters was the gangs in El Salvador. So that gave them greater strength, greater manpower, and crucially links to larger organizations in the United States, which helped them with transnational crime, but also boosted their local strength. So that's the background to how things got so bad. 
So in the period we're discussing here, so post-dictatorship, but before Bukele, the current president, comes into power, politics would usually just bounce between two parties. The FMLN, usually seen as the center-left party, and ARENA, usually seen as the center-right party. So during this period, whilst politics bounced between these two and the violence began to spiral, what methods were the government trying to use to curb this gang violence? The techniques that had been tried before simply weren't up to the, the job of curbing the gang violence, and large parts of the government had also been corrupted by the gangs, which obviously affected the law enforcement a lot. MS-13, Mara Salvatrucha, they've been around since the 1980s. They started in Los Angeles, in California, and they're now very big in El Salvador, and the other big gang is Barrio 18. And at the height of the gang violence, it, it was not a free-for-all. People knew very well where each gang's territory ended and the next one began. Now, those boundaries did move, and they moved very violently. But on any given day, people would know where it was. And that was that was one of the problems, because you had people in, in neighborhoods who, in order just to go to the shops a mile away, would have to pass out of the territory of one gang and into the territory of the next. And then there would be that would be dangerous. They might be subject to taxes, as the gangs would sometimes call them. And it just made it really difficult for people to live normal lives. So it was like you had to cross a frontier manned by incredibly threatening border guards just to go to a nearby supermarket. And what was law enforcement like during this period? Law enforcement, some of them were taking bribes from the gangs, but some of them sincerely wanted to crack down on them. And some of them were every bit as brutal as you see with some of the, the police in Brazil. But they were constrained by the law. They couldn't put people in prison for no reason. It was very difficult to do so. They had to get evidence against people. Uh, and it's always very difficult to get evidence against gang members because everybody's frightened to testify against them. Now, El Salvador has a few oddities compared to the other Central American states, one of them being that they're the only Central American state, apart from tiny Belize for the north, that doesn't span right across the width of Central America. In other words, if you were traveling north of the Darien Gap, in the south of Panama, right up to the US through Central America, because of geography, you start off in Panama, and you have to go into Costa Rica. And from there, you have to go into Nicaragua. And from there, you have to go into Honduras. And then from there, you can go straight through to Guatemala, and then Mexico, and then the US. So for someone transiting through the region, you don't actually need to go through El Salvador. But if you were traveling between Panama and the US, you would actually have to detour many hundreds of kilometers south from the optimum route in order for you to transit through El Salvador. So many drug routes coming up from the south of Central America actually just avoid the country due to pure geography. So with that in mind, what role does El Salvador play within the international drug trade and other products being shipped between Central America and then brought up toward the United States? They did have some role in the drug trade, but their main source of money was extorting money out of El Salvadorans. They would charge every business that operated, every bus service, every shop, everyone would have to hand over a significant portion of their money to one of the gangs, sometimes to more than one of the gangs. If you had a bus route that went through more than one gang's territory, you'd have to pay them both off. And if you didn't pay them off, they would set fire to your buses and kill the drivers and possibly the passengers as well. So it was entirely parasitic. They would take money from the people who earned it and give them nothing useful in return. And what were the governments being seen to be doing about it? 
Well, every leader would say, well, just before they were elected to say the presidency, they would say that they were going to do a big crackdown on the gangs and they were going to solve the problem once and for all. And they would always attempt some kind of a crackdown, but they wouldn't solve the problem once and for all. It would recover and you know, the murder rate would go up or, and down depending on whether there was a, a big turf battle between the gangs or not. But the, the underlying problem that the vast majority of people in El Salvador lived in fear of the gangs, that didn't change. And possibly the political class were less concerned about it than they should have been because the, the one group of people who were not really affected that much was rich people. So the gangs were not able to control the really fancy areas of any city, but they were, they were everywhere else. The times when El Salvador was the murder capital of the world would be because there was a gang war going on, because some kind of truce between the gangs had broken down, maybe one of their leaders had been killed, and they were fighting over territory. So a lot of that's kind of gangster on gangster murders. The stuff that people really objected to was the murder of non-gang members, civilians. But it was not just the murder, it was the threat that bothered people. If you're a ordinary shopkeeper and a man with tattoos comes into your shop and says, you've got to start paying or else, it's the fear of being murdered or the fear that your family will be murdered that causes people to pay up. In El Salvador, the murder rate would double between 2013 and 2016, making it the murder capital of the world. And from this period of chaos, one of the major characters in today's story actually emerged. That person being the country's current president, Nayib Bukele. Bukele was a rising star in politics and the mayor of a small town by the age of 30. And as mayor, he actually did some great work, getting literacy rates right up, kicking off a lot of government, healthcare and housing projects in the city, and even lowering the homicide rates in his city during a period when the rest of the country was skyrocketing. He was also young, good looking, and had a huge social media following, particularly on Twitter and YouTube. He even gained so much attention that in 2019, he broke away from his old party, joined another smaller party at the last moment, and rode that to becoming the country's youngest president, ending decades of El Salvador's two-party rule. So how did this young man manage to capture the national spotlight and gain control of the country so quickly? He's a natural showman. His father was a celebrity imam who's used to the idea of preaching to, to audiences, persuade, working them into a lather and persuading them of things. His family owns a sort of public relations advertising business. He's really good at persuading. He's really good at snappy lines. Some of the work that's, that's been done studying his communications technique, it's, it's not just that he's cool and wears his baseball cap backwards and has sort of immaculate facial hair and youth references and all that kind of thing. It's his ability to command social media, to, to get people talking about the thing that he's talking about is unparalleled in El Salvador. There was, there was one study that suggested that he could get everyone talking about the thing that he wanted to talk about within like, I think, nine hours of talking about it. And no other politician in El Salvador comes close to that. He's, he's just a very snappy communicator. The thing that people remember was his stance on crime. I mean, he makes lots of the kinds of promises that candidates do about improving social services. But the, the big thing that people notice about him is that he says he's tough on crime. And unlike previous candidates and presidents, he means it. Now, Bukele begins his presidency going in pretty heavy-handed against the criminal gangs. 
very quickly using the military to re-secure some of these gang-controlled areas back to the government, in a technique somewhat similar to the ones we'd seen in Brazil in the past. But as this began to roll out, it quickly ran into problems. You see, El Salvador has a odd electoral system, one where the presidential elections happen years before the parliamentary ones. So whilst he just swept an election, that was a presidential election, which meant that the people who were in parliament were still the ones that were elected years before, made up mostly of the party he just abandoned and the party who hated him already, and they didn't really care very much for him at the time. So pretty quickly, he experienced a lot of pushback from the legislative branch against his executive branch programs, with the legislative branch saying he was using funding and appropriations without the consent of the government and ruling by executive decree. At the same time, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court of the country, were also beginning to push back on Bukele's operations, stating that he was carrying these out without proper process, assuming people were guilty before ever putting them on trial, and coming in heavy-handed, giving the right to live or die to just basic soldiers. This is a pretty pivotal moment for El Salvadorian politics, so can you take us through this period? Initially, he wasn't quite as gloves off as he is now, but as he has managed to change the courts and get rid of judges who who would think that what he's doing is unconstitutional when there was one terrible weekend where 87 people were murdered in gang fighting and that gave him the excuse to declare a state of exception which means like a, a state of emergency which was supposed to be a, a temporary measure although he keeps renewing it so it's it's still in force and that's when he really went to town and he just he told the police to arrest absolutely anyone they thought might have any gang ties at all on the basis of the flimsiest of evidence it could be just a tip off an anonymous tip off from someone it could be but because they have a gang tattoo or just for any other reason why the, the police might think that someone was somehow connected with the gangs. It doesn't have to be actually a gangster. It could be someone who, who has some vague ties with them, which, which benefits them in some way. The new rules have been written so vaguely and the, the, the gloves have been so comprehensively taken off that essentially the police can arrest anyone they think might be a gangster. They lock them up without anything resembling a proper trial. You know, you have sort of group hearings where there's 50 people in a room in front of one judge, maybe not even in the same room, maybe it's been remote sometimes by Zoom, and the judge says, yeah, I think we've got reason to hold these people, and then they just hold them. And they say that they will have trials of these people eventually, although they may well be group trials, but that seems to be kicked down the road until after the, the next election. And so what's happened is he has rounded up more than 71,000 people, which is, that's equivalent to 7% of male Salvadorians aged 14 to 29. So in that sort of key young man demographic. And that makes a very big difference. There's obviously huge numbers of innocent people there. and They say that they're going to work through and, and, and release them. And they've, they've released a, a few thousand. But mostly it's changed the balance of terror in the neighborhoods. So it used to be that if a gangster walked into your shop and said, pay up or else, you couldn't really do anything about it. Because if you called the police, they wouldn't be able to put him in prison without some kind of evidence, which would mean testimony, and the gangsters could, could simply kill the witnesses. And then the person who'd snitched on them would, would be killed. So the fear that people had of gangs was enormous. 
What's flipped now is that if the gangster walks down the street, he knows that anyone on that street can get him arrested and locked up indefinitely in a very crowded and uncomfortable prison just by making an anonymous phone call to the police. And so suddenly the gangsters are frightened. Now, upon this pushback from the other branches of government, Bukele would call an emergency vote, asking for the legislators to fund these operations. And standing behind him in this vote were dozens of soldiers in full military gear, hoping to nudge legislatures to vote the right way. And so this operation would continue, with many more being arrested. Then came the parliamentary elections, where Bukele's new party would win a massive supermajority inside the parliament, giving him control of both the executive and the legislative branch. And with this supermajority now in place, he would use it to impeach and replace judges who stood in the way of the program. So judges throughout the country knew either get in line or get impeached. Later on, he'd also go on to impeach a bunch of Supreme Court judges for this exact reason, eventually giving him control of all three branches of government. So now he has complete backing of the government, does he still enjoy the backing of the military? So right from the start, he made a point of paying the police and the army very well and and listening to them and making sure that whatever it was that they wanted he was going to supply them with you know he wanted to make sure that they were on in his corner before he started doing some of his more extravagantly illiberal moves getting the military with guns to walk with him into parliament was a way of telling the people in parliament that i'm in charge i'm going to win and there's nothing you can do about it and it turned out that was right. And how did this battle between himself and the courts end up playing out? His first response to the courts was simply to ignore them. So in 2020, the Constitutional Court ruled that his emergency powers that he assumed during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, were illegal. But he just went ahead and, and wielded them anyway. And then once he had a majority in Congress, he, he pushed aside the judges of the Constitutional Court and the Attorney General, who was investigating one of his ministers for allegedly embezzling funds, and he replaced them with yes-men. The way he did this was almost certainly unconstitutional. Certainly that's what neutral uh, arbiters of this think. He doesn't care. He has steadily become more authoritarian, and everything he does, he says, is necessary and justified because he needs to win the war uh, uh, on, on gangs. But it's not hard to see where this might go from here. He has said that the next big crackdown will be on corruption, and he hasn't done that yet, but the implications are, are fairly clear. If he is able to go after white-collar criminals with the same almost non-existent standards of evidence that he's used to lock up gangsters, that gives him an enormous stick to wield over pretty much the entire middle classes. You know, he can go after opposition people for, quote, corruption. And, you know, it's always possible to find that something on someone's tax return or isn't quite right. And it's, it's terrifying to people. He's also got this opportunity from the war on drugs to intimidate journalists. You talk to journalists in El Salvador and they're very worried because they ought to be a, a, a robust check on what the government's doing. But a law he passed in, in 2022 allows for jail sentences of 10 to 15 years for anyone who transmits or reproduces a message which is, quote, created or allegedly created by gangs that could foster anxiety and panic. That means, essentially, if you, if you say something that relates to gangs, like that the, the way that they're being locked up is unjust, someone can say, well, I allege that 
that's what the gangs are saying and you're repeating their messages. And suddenly almost any criticism of, of his central policy potentially gets you a 15-year jail sentence. So that's causing a lot of journalists to say, you know what, I think maybe I ought to leave the country before it's too late. And whilst I do understand all this, he is also still quite popular, with Bukele still having widespread popularity amongst the majority of Salvadorian citizens. After all, for the average person, crime is way down at the moment. So do citizens not realize what's going on, or do the majority just feel that the ends justify the means? And they're not being locked up, so it's not a problem. It's clearly true that he is very popular. Now, whether it's actually 90% or 80%, I mean, who knows when, how nervous people might feel about talking to pollsters, but it's very clear if you go out into the, the poorer neighborhoods that he is extremely popular except among those whose relatives have been arrested. People feel the difference on the streets, people feel safer, and that that's so important that that gets him enormous credibility with the public. The difficulty is that, you know, is, is the where does it go from here? He's said that he will allow a judicial process to take place, but if, if he were to have proper trials with proper rules of evidence, he'd end up having to release a lot of these people, and he's clearly not going to do that. Instead, he's using it as a sort of wonderful sort of election uh, tool that essentially he can suggest either the opposition agree with me, in which case, why don't you stick with me, the original person, or if they disagree with me, then as soon as they're in, they'll let the gangs go and they'll come back to your neighborhood and kill you. So it's an, it's an extraordinarily powerful uh, message, which means he's more or less guaranteed to win the next election. But the longer he's in power and the more he gets away with eroding the, the rule of law and, and, and the checks and balances, the more Salvadorans are going to find that, okay, they're not at the mercy of the gangs anymore, but they're very much at the mercy of the government. And they're very much at the mercy of individual officials within that government. If you have these kind of tools here that enable people to be locked up on the basis of no evidence, that shifts the balance of power between the official who's demanding a bribe from you and you, the ordinary person. You know, maybe maybe the sort of powerful person trying to shake you down has the power to lock you away forever with a tip off to his his friend and police. And that's 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 very alarming possibility. And any anyone who gets the kinds of powers that that Bukele has accrued so far, they tend not to surrender them voluntarily. The way the way it was put to me by one human rights campaigner was that he had managed to do in El Salvador in terms of accumulating the powers necessary to sustain a dictatorship. He'd managed to do in two years what it took the despot of, of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, 20 years to do. It's very easy to see how he might become a dictator for life. And then that creates all kinds of problems. Hard to dispel the idea that he's a dictator in the making. I mean, he actually had as his Twitter handle the coolest dictator in the world. So I think you, you, you have to take people like this sometimes at their word. He likes the idea of being a dictator, and he's a very long way towards becoming one. So Bukele was elected and tasked by the people of El Salvador to clean up the streets. That was what he promised to do. And it's hard to argue that he hasn't been true to his word. Watching the murder rate fall from what was 4.8 to 
per 100,000 down to just 0.5 per 100,000, a pretty stark drop. But all of this was only possible by Bukele taking off all of the safety guards from his government administration, making sure there was nothing to stand in his way or question his judgment. Something akin to removing the airbags from your car so you can go that little bit faster. Again, perfectly fine, right up until it isn't. So with that in mind, let's go into what happens next. Have these programs been a long-term success or just a temporary win? And what lies ahead for Bukele and the rest of the Salvadorians? Well, to answer all that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Trading Traditions you can see why 90-something percent of Salvadorans approve of Bukele's leadership, even as he takes control of the judicial branch, even as the sweeping arrests that have sent many gang members to prison have done the same to innocent people who are held on questionable evidence with a lack of legal access or contact with their loved ones and may eventually face trial alongside dozens of other people. But at the moment in time, which should be a moment of triumph for a leader with a 90-something approval rating with a surefire chance of being elected, who has dealt with the issue that Salvadorans cared about the most, the tone of his speech was one of defensiveness, of telling the people, don't listen to how people are reporting on our country. Additionally, there have been reports that political opponents, journalists, and union leaders have been surveilled as part of the government's crackdowns. So I think Bukele's leadership style is as insecure as it might be revolutionary to the established political system in El Salvador. Nick Bignali is a peace and conflict analyst specializing in Central and Latin America. Nick has published numerous articles and reports on the political unfoldings within this area of the world, and has become many's go-to source for reports pertaining to this region. And in addition to that, he's also the chief analyst on the Red Lines America's desk. So we're thrilled to have Nick on the program today. It's inconceivable to me that Bukele will not win re-election. I mean, he has extended the constitution to be able to do so. 90-something percent of Salvadorans approve of his policies, with Salvadorans broadly being supportive of what Bukele's political direction and his methodologies of achieving safety have been. Security has set the tone in El Salvador for so long that I think he has a lot of goodwill from the people right now. However, there are certain fault lines. There are certain reasons to doubt the longevity of Bukele's methods of achieving a safer place in El Salvador. There are three things that I would point to that call into question why Bukele might fear for the future and want to consolidate power now as much as possible. Number one, will the strategy of mass arrests going up into building prisons, putting tens of thousands of people behind bars without trial, will this strategy continue to reduce or stabilize violence in the long term? Previous Manodoro policies have broken down when upheld by the ARENA and FMLM parties. Bukele's differs in extent. It differs in the extent of the arrests, the extent of investments in prisons. But there is an issue of sustainability of keeping gang members in prison forever. Right now, at the time that we're speaking, around 2% of El Salvador's population is in prison. Innocent people are being arrested without due process. They leave behind friends, they leave behind families who have had difficulty contacting their loved ones while they've been in prison have difficulty providing them with legal access. There is a lack of transparency into how exactly people are being treated in prison, although there are reports of containment of 
tens of thousands of prisoners in a room at once, a, a violent treatment by prison maintenance. And there is also a dynamic of how the government is treating evidence and how it is procuring evidence. There has been an anonymous hotline that has been set up that people can report other Salvadorans for affiliation with gangs. There have been reports of this being used to settle scores and feuds, which I think then comes down to a lack of a transitional justice process, a lack of reconciliation has left a polarized society with mechanisms for a lot of potential for abuse, both in terms of an unresolved conflicts within the Salvadoran population and from the government itself. And so these things do psychological damage to a population that even if in terms of the prison population, in terms of the people who have been imprisoned, it solves initially the waves of violent crime, the waves of extortion. You are damaging other sectors of society as a result. To step away from security for a second, that I think Bukele is concerned about. So even in this instance, we can suppose that violence remains stable or reduced in another hypothetical term of Bukele's, and there is not this popular outcry towards the government's security policy in and of itself. The economy has supplanted crime as the biggest concern of Salvadorans in the population. 63% of Salvadorans think that the economy is the problem that most affects society. And it speaks to the radical transformation that crime is now a distant second at 12.5%. El Salvador remains one of the poorest countries in Latin America and the Caribbean by GDP per capita, by human development. Wealth inequality is high. And annual extortion payments made by individuals to gangs has been estimated at around a couple of hundred million dollars annually. So you would hope that Bukele's methods do at least result in Salvadorans having more money in their pocket that they would have lost as a result of extortion. But the economic factors look unstable. Low foreign investment, slim economic opportunities that have in the past fueled conflict. So I think the question mark is how will Bukele respond to dissatisfaction from citizens towards the economy? There are signs that he is going in on investing in tourism, going in on essentially whitewashing the reputation of the country based off its security profile to attract foreign investment and to attract tourists. Whether this proves to be enough in terms of making El Salvador a more prosperous and equally felt place, I'm not sure, but I think this would be a trigger factor for conflict that weighs on Bukele if it is not producing results in the next term or so. So another interesting part of the Bukele story is his love of Bitcoin with Bukele even going as far as to make Bitcoin a national currency of El Salvador, making plans to create Bitcoin cities and giving citizenship to anyone who invests enough Bitcoin into the country. A few years ago, he even went out and bought millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin using treasury funds in a program that saw every citizen of the country receive $30 worth of Bitcoin using an app called Chivo. But the results of this program have been somewhat mixed to say the least. Can you take us through how it all went and why we ended up where we are? So just to give like a little bit of context, El Salvador dollarized in the years following the Civil War, and that legacy has been dubious. Annual GDP growth has slowed in the years after dollarization. It has exceeded 3% only a handful of times within 20-something years. Imports were growing three times as fast as exports in the six years following dollarization. Consumer prices and production costs have rose disproportionate to wages. 
and rates of foreign direct investment have been low by regional standards in El Salvador. So this sets the stage for El Salvador's adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender. Bukele's rationale was to boost financial inclusion, to increase investment in the country, and to spur technological innovation. The other key piece is to have made remittances access cheaper and faster than before. Again, with 23% of El Salvador's GDP coming from remittances, this is, in my mind, a significant piece behind that decision. Around 2% of remittances have been transferred using cryptocurrency. Fees have been reported as higher than established methods. General uptake of cryptocurrency is low, and roughly two-thirds of Salvadorans disagree with the decision to have adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. There is also the potential for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to be used for tax avoidance and to aid the operations of organized crime groups in the country. And there is the issue of its volatility. By November of 2022, the Bitcoins bought by the Salvadoran government have lost 67% of their value. So as, as Bukele enjoys these approval ratings for his crackdown on gangs, the economy could be his undoing here. There have been some surprising signs of resilience. Earlier in 2023, El Salvador avoided defaulting on an $800 million bond, a default that was previously considered probable by various credit rating agencies. And I think Bukele has been looking to signal to the likes of the IMF after years of antagonism uh, that we can affect uh, some kind of market-friendly sensibility in our economic policy. They took out a loan using special drawing rights from the IMF and from the Central American Bank of Economic Integration uh, to secure a bond buyback. It's unclear as to what that translates to in terms of revenue and GDP growth, but government statistics report that revenue from the sector is expected to increase by 23% in the next five years. I'm not so sure about that. I think time will tell. But I think the adoption of Bitcoin has been something that the population has received coolly. It has sort of increased the instability of El Salvador's economy. But the government seems to be doubling down on trying to make that work as a platform to attract investment. Whether that succeeds in the next four or five years or not remains to be seen. So now that Bukele has a firm control over the executive branch, a supermajority in the legislative branch, and has removed all the judges who stood in his way from the judicial branch, how has his governance style changed from when he was first coming into power? And do his recent speeches give us an idea on how he might look to govern going forward? I do see him as someone who is defiant and thin-skinned and defensive, and I don't believe he would take kindly to popular opposition that disagrees with his methods or in situations where the Salvadoran public is no longer to make a bargain with Bukele that you can essentially do whatever you want as long as you get the results that we care about. I think that there has been limited political opposition to Nueva's ideas right now and political opponents have already been surveilled along with journalists, along with union leaders. Based on Bukele's reactivity to criticism and hostility towards political opposition, it does show the roots of a potential further concentration of power. It's either the sign of an increasingly emboldened autocrat or in the sense of direct democracy, you have a leader with a 92% of approval. Why shouldn't this guy take a shot again? I, I think it could get nasty if the Salvadoran public are not on board with Bukele 
in, involved with his results and his methods at the same time. In terms of whether this would spiral into a military dictatorship, I, I think that's too early and presumptive to say. But I do think he has shown a propensity to want to keep control of the narrative, to keep control of opposing ideas. And so I don't think it's out of the question that when the chips are down, you could have um, more restrictive measures of governance and increasing measures within the judiciary for Bukele to assert further control over the political narratives of the day. Regardless of all of that, Bukele has still been getting a lot of praise for his work curbing gang violence throughout this region, with many politicians throughout the Americas calling for their leaders to adopt similar programs to curb gang violence in their countries. But from having poured over the numbers and the data and the statistics yourself, do you think if a country like the US or Mexico were to go down that road and follow El Salvador's plan to the letter for cracking down on gang violence, do you think it would be likely to actually work? Or does El Salvador have a few unique circumstances that allow it to work there as opposed to someone like the US or Mexico who are far bigger? Mexico is a good example. 2% of Salvadorans population is in prison right now. In Mexico, if you were to attempt to imprison 2% of the country's population, you would have over a million people in prison. Uh, Mexico is a much vaster country with disparate areas where organized crime groups and drug trafficking organizations have been able to deeper entrench themselves into local government with a variety of different terrains that have made governance from the central government into states much more difficult to assert. The same goes for Colombia in terms of its geography and in terms of the sophistication of its criminal organizations. I think it's worth splitting the difference between different kinds of criminal groups in El Salvador. You have MS-13 and Barrio 18. They make their bread and butter via extortion, through economic strong-arming, through money laundering, through establishing territorial control within local communities, most of which has been concentrated within neighborhoods of the capital city, San Salvador. The relative lack of sophistication of the groups that have operated in El Salvador has made it easier for Bukele to have just indiscriminately thrown a lot of people into prison, um, including the gang's top brass. There has been broad public support for these measures in El Salvador because the country has been under a state of terror pretty much throughout its life cycle. You know, whether you talk about the dynamics of big agribusiness and landowner families versus a peasant underclass, or the clashes of paramilitary squads and left-wing guerrilla groups. You know, the question that I'm going to ask, and I, I think when I relate this to perceptions of Bukele's policies, there has been a dissonance between the state of governance and the institutions in El Salvador with the appearance of democracy and how many people in El Salvador have lived their lives. Are you free within a democracy when you can't walk the streets at night or enter certain territories in your community? Are you free if you can go to the booth on election day and cast a vote, but you still pay regular extortion fees to gangs to keep your business open? The resulting climate of fear, threat, restriction, and despair that many Salvadorans have been living with, as they've been living with many forms of gang violence, has already resembled authoritarian rule, albeit not one imposed by the government directly, but by gangs. So with that depth of violence, has also begetted a, a certain 
permissiveness towards Bukele's methods in the country. And I think because the problem was so severe and so directly speaking to the heart of terror of how people have lived, Salvadorans have been willing to support it. I don't think there's the political oxygen necessarily for it to succeed in a Mexico or Colombia. Several other countries like Honduras and Guatemala are trialing similar methods to Bukele. They have suffered similar degrees of high extortion, high homicide, high displacement, high femicide. They are distinct in that, again, they are larger countries with more disparate areas of governance. Um, El Salvador is a uniquely small nation within the region, but its criminal groups also have that comparative lack of sophistication. In the likes of Chile and Costa Rica, for instance, where we see rises in violent crime due to political unrest, but from countries that have a basis of democratic respect, I think there is the lack of political will to impose anything like Bukele's policies because of respect for the democratic process. I think you have nations in the Americas that are aware that democracy has been disrupted and fragile and see it as something sacred and something worth fighting for and preserving. And you have nations whose governance look at the problems within their country. They look at the popularity of Bukele's measures and they think that they want a peace. So I don't think it's necessarily applicable outside of El Salvador to countries like Mexico and Colombia and the US. I think it maybe has more of a shot of translating in the likes of Honduras and Guatemala, where these are countries that are similarly small by size and have criminal groups that operate in much the same way and have similar sort of political atmospheres, suffer the same degrees of violence to a same extent, suffer similar economic issues. But I don't believe that Bukele's successes will have broader play in the region, even as leaders, when they're struggling with their own contested popularity, might appeal towards a Bukele's model. Bukele and El Salvador are trying brand new approaches to issues that have been plaguing multiple administrations in San Salvador, curbing gangs with harsh punishments and wider nets, trying to encourage Bitcoin investors to place their money in more tax-friendly El Salvador, and putting forward trade deals that look to rebuild some of the bargaining power that the region once had whilst under unified rule. But there is one thing looming over all of Bukele's decisions at the moment, the US giant further to the north. Bukele is aware that trying to force the US to make economic deals between the two of them could become somewhat one-sided when the US makes more than the entire annual GDP of El Salvador every 10.3 hours. So what is the new approach by El Salvador, and how are they trying to change their status quo in the relationship between themselves and Washington? How are these new trade deals between El Salvador and China likely to play out, and is there a reason behind Washington's recent ramp-up of rhetoric criticizing the democratic backsliding within El Salvador? Well, to answer that, we're joined by our final guest. Part three, the guidance of gravity. El Salvador has been a, an important ally, historically speaking, of the U.S. in terms of migration and security in, in the U.S. and in the broader region, with expansive cooperation even at the local level to ensure a degree of security in El Salvador, but also strong ties and lines of communication between U.S. and Salvadoran officials over the years. Margaret Myers is the director of the Asia and Latin America program 
of the Inter-American Dialogue. In addition to this, she's also the founder of the Dialogue's China and Latin America Working Group, which formed in 2011 to examine China's growing presence in Latin America and the Caribbean, and develop the China Latin America Financial Database, the only publicly available source of empirical data on Chinese state lending within Latin America. She's a widely published analyst and a well-renowned expert when it comes to Latin and Central America, as well as the region's complicated and evolving trade dynamics. And because of all this, we're thrilled to have her back on the program today. We saw that partnership begin to deteriorate after El Salvador decided to cut ties with Taiwan and establish them with China in 2018. And at that point in time, it was unclear, I think, to the U.S. just how much this would affect the, the partnership. We've seen a significant shift in the overall tenor of the relationship and in El Salvador's interest in, in engaging extensively with the U.S. And so this is the, a really different moment, obviously, in the Salvador-U.S. relationship and one worth keeping note of. In your opinion, how has the U.S. relationship with El Salvador changed since Bukele came to power? Alongside several other Central American countries, we're seeing a very different approach to governance in El Salvador that we've ever seen before. It's one that embraces elements of authoritarianism and that has, in many ways, eroded the democratic sort of fundamentals, the democratic institutions. But there are many countries that are looking to El Salvador also across the region uh, as Bukele pursues this model and at the same time achieves a certain degree of, of support among the, the local population. He has very high approval ratings, but certainly at a cost. Underlying all of this was a profound interest in cooperation on these issues of shared interest, especially on security. So Bukele, in many ways, is a continuation of the ongoing challenges that the U.S. and, and El Salvador face in terms of seeing eye to eye from a political perspective. It's really important to distinguish between what's being said on the ground and what's actually happening. Certainly, Bukele has indicated a very strong preference for engaging with China on certain issues, a, a, a real interest in strengthening that particular relationship and welcoming more in the way of Chinese support. Whether that materializes or not is another question. We've seen some degree of support. We've seen a promise of 500 million from China for certain infrastructure projects, which are relatively small scale in comparison to what China's doing elsewhere in the region. An additional 100 million also promised. And some of these projects actually delivered. There's a national library being built with Chinese assistance. The Surf City project was a sort of seaside rejuvenation project. There's also talk of a free trade agreement, which is it's unclear whether that will happen or not, and whether it will have a profound effect on overall trade linkages or on El Salvador's exports. Certainly China's grappling with its own challenges at home and is rethinking its approach to finance, to overseas investment and to risk. And certainly Central American countries and countries such as El Salvador, Honduras, which also recently cut ties with, with Taiwan and established them with the PRC, have much higher risk profiles than many other countries in the region, top destinations for Chinese investment to date. As it stands presently, China and El Salvador don't do a huge amount of trade. So what sort of an impact would it actually have on China's economy or El Salvador's economy? This free trade agreement wouldn't do much for China. It's, it's an offering. It's a gesture to the Bukele government. Everything that El Salvador would export to China is already being exported to China from other countries, many of which are much closer to China than El Salvador. So it's not as though you know China relies heavily on Salvadoran export as a supply source in general. 
But in general, what we've seen, at least in, in Central America, when you look at the Costa Rican agreement, is an agreement that does increase trade, but has mostly increased Chinese exports to Costa Rica as opposed to Costa Rican exports to China by leaps and bounds. And so whether that is beneficial to Costa Rica or not is debatable. In general, the out outcome is one that would appear to have benefited China far more than, than Costa Rica after several years now of this free trade agreement being in place. And I would imagine that the same would happen in the event of a China-El Salvador agreement. Well, when Bukele isn't talking about China, he's often talking about Central America, often touting the building of a more cohesive and cooperative Central American region, envisioning far more trade between these states rather than most of them relying on China or the United States for the majority of their goods. But how likely do you think it is that he'll be actually able to pull that off? This has been on the agenda for many years and has been indicated as a priority for wide-ranging governments across the region over the course of many years. But there are so many differences among the governments at this particular juncture in terms of the their commitment to, to democratic institutions, their commitment to different forms of global institutions, their approach to grappling with what are really intense security challenges across the region. All of these things, uh, these differences would appear to be intensifying rather than the other way around. And I think this precludes the possibility of more extensive collaboration through this or other frameworks. This increased engagement, is that something we're just seeing between San Salvador and Beijing? Or is this an increasingly wider trend across Central America as a whole? How does Bukele's relationship with China compare to some of his neighbors like Nicaragua? In general, all of the Central American countries that are diplomatically allied with China have been very friendly to China. They're looking for support for infrastructure projects. They are looking for also partnership in other ways on technical cooperation and other matters, including within the security realm, as, as we've mentioned. And certainly Bukele has sought, despite considerable U.S. opposition, has been very, very friendly and effusive in his praise of China's ambassador to El Salvador and of all that China is doing in the country. That said, it's unclear to what extent the, these feelings are reciprocated. China, as I mentioned, has less capital and so must be more selective when engaging on infrastructure projects or in sectors where it has already established a very pronounced presence. Even in, in its trade relations, it's looking to do as much as it can in the region from a diplomatic and economic perspective with fewer resources. And so much of what China's investing in across the region are smaller projects that are not really emblematic of the sort of large-scale cross-regional BRI projects that we saw in 2015 or 2016, but are largely tech-related or innovation-related sectors that ensure faster rates of return. And that's not always been something China's been able to achieve with some of its projects in the region. Certainly, if you're looking to select the best projects, the least risky projects, and those that are based in sectors that are tech-specific or else related to innovation, for example, in the energy sector with renewable energy technologies being employed across the region, much of what China is focusing on right now is best achieved in, for example, South America or, or Mexico, where they 
there are the skills, there is the capacity, there are plans in place to to engage in energy transition. There is a already sort of operational and functional investment environment, and there are ways for Chinese companies to plug in in these sectors of interest. That is not well established in the context of Central America, at least not across the board. And so naturally, China's engagement has been far less extensive in the Central American region. And what about the relationship between the United States and El Salvador? With San Salvador continuing to pivot toward China and an increasing backsliding in the country's democracy, where do you see the relationship between San Salvador and Washington going forward? This was a really interesting development in that when Bukele was elected, there really was a sense, including some signals from Bukele himself, that, that this would be a strong partnership that Bukele would engage extensively, even more extensively than his predecessors in the previous government with the U.S. on wide-ranging matters of interest and a lot of signals. But it turned out not to be the case. A lot of this happened as a result of the decision to engage more extensively with China at the same time while embracing policies that have fundamentally eroded, weakened the democratic system in the country and neglected the rights and civil liberties of so so much of the population. So very shortly after Bukele's election, a, a real sort of rethinking of, of the relationship in Washington. And I think, you know, the Biden administration has done what it can to engage with the Bukele government, but is at something of an impasse given the degree of disagreement on the extent to which Bukele's policies are beneficial to, to El Salvador in the long run. There still are ties between the two governments as they as they look to cooperate on issues of common concern, especially security. But these tensions remain and the obstacles are, are much bigger than, than they ever have been before. All of this is happening at a pretty pivotal moment in El Salvador, as right now, Bukele is technically barred by the constitution of El Salvador from running for president again in 2024. But it seems that he's already pressuring his Supreme Court to either bend or ignore the rule altogether to allow him to run for president again in 24, if he does officially pull the trigger on this move, removing the last safeguard of the Salvadorian democracy, what would the US response be? Assuming Bukele takes this road and seeks re-election, there will absolutely be a, a very strong reaction from the US. That said, the linkages between El Salvador and the U.S. through remittances and at the security level will persist regardless of what road Bukele takes as concerns his own presidency. And so I think there will be no choice, at least on the part of the U.S., but to engage at some to some degree. For Bukele, this is a critical partner. The U.S. remains a critical partner simply from an economic perspective, given the extent of transfers of remittances that come from the U.S. and their effect on the economy in El Salvador. So that opens doors, right, for communication. That said, if this is the situation were to devolve even more, if we see uh, an even more profound disregard for democratic institutions and principles and for for human rights and other issues of profound concern to the U.S. of the sort that we've seen, for example, in, in Nicaragua, right, or, or in Venezuela, that could lead to a very drastic reversal of policy and some important shifts in the way that the U.S. engages. This is where things get complicated for the average Salvadorian. It would be foolish to think that they don't see what's happening. That they don't realize how much power is being consolidated within Bukele's office. But 
it's also easy to understand how they would see life also getting better. For a Salvadorian person, they've likely lived through a period of awful civil war, followed by an era of political inaction, as they faced constant extortions and indiscriminate shootings every day. And then out of this chaos comes Bukele, offering to solve all of their problems overnight, even if that meant a few innocent people went to jail. And at that point, if I'm a Salvadorian, I think I'd be probably willing to try anything. I can even see the argument of why shouldn't Bukele run for president again? After all, if 90% of the country wants him to keep the job, then how is it democratic to go against the will of 90% of the country? I do see that argument, but I also see that removing all these safety catches and speeding the car up is not always a good idea. By allowing Bukele to have complete control over all three branches of government and flaunt even the most basic of rules and put in by the Constitution of the Supreme Court, there is nothing to hold Bukele back now. You're just barreling down the side of the mountain at whatever speed you are. To explain, if Bukele were to become the dictator that people worry he will be, or even a future leader were to have dictatorial ambitions, now, after all this, there's nothing to prevent them from doing that. There's nothing to slow them down. So this is El Salvador's moment of truth. They can either attempt to pull back from this political consolidation to try and return the country to its previous middling road of half solutions, or continue to barrel down the side of this mountain, not knowing if it means a crash at the bottom. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. This has been one of the busiest weeks of production here at the show, and we have a few amazing surprises to share with you in a couple of weeks' time. But I don't want to give away too much too soon. So until then, stay tuned. We have more, more coming up very soon. So if you are excited to find out more about it though, the best thing you can do is make sure you're subscribed to all of our social media as more information will be coming out about this very soon. And if you want to find out all of the upcoming big news about this project, you can find all the links and info on our Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeHilliardOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons who donate a small amount of money to help myself and the team keep the show going. And speaking of amazing patrons, this week I'd like to thank Muteo Muenza, Jenny Schwartz, Al-Hassan Sal, and Dave Baggett, who are the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners like these guys. But for now, this episode on El Salvador was all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is State of War, MS-13 and El Salvador's World of Violence, for a look at just how bad these situations become inside El Salvador. The second is Maradura, the politics of gang control in El Salvador. Great reading for laying the groundwork for the pre-Bukele era. And the third is Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration by Aviva Chomsky for a wider understanding of the region as a whole. I want to give a big thanks to this week's guests, Robert Guest, Nick McNally, and Margaret Myers. It was an absolutely fantastic panel for a really complicated subject. In addition to those guys, I also want to give a big thanks to my staff, starting with the primary researchers for this piece, Nick McNally and Scott Missler-Ferguson. Latin America is always the area of the world I most struggle with, so I'm incredibly lucky to have such a great team who knows this area so well. On top of those guys, I'd like to thank Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zuvella, Genevieve Dolan-May, Nato Stiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lamb, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Missler-Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, and Robbie Sutton, a research assistant and writers, Jamie Tanner, a media director, 
Raoul Devon Ryanan, Noah Ocean Analyst, Francis Leach, our Director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Munch, our field correspondent. Safe to say, this team is the best in the business. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.